Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Doxly. Doxly's secure transaction management platform brings control, peace of mind, and velocity to legal transactions by centralizing checklists and reporting, tracking documents, tasks, and versions, and automating the entire signature management process. Corporate transactions simplified. For more information, go to doxly.com. That's D-O-X-L-Y.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is renowned for his toxic tort and product liability work and other complex litigation in both federal and state courts. He defends class actions for companies from all industries and business sectors. The co-chair of his firm's product liability and mass torts litigation group and co-chair of the Chicago litigation practice at Greenberg Troig, Frank Satira, welcome to Left Foot. Well, thank you, Nicole, and it's my pleasure to to be here and to speak to your strong following. Thank you. We're excited to have you as a guest on our program, Frank. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in developing business? A couple of things. I mean, one is I've had the uh, great fortune to have some terrific mentors in my career, which I think is very important. And from those mentors, I learn a great deal about a couple of substantive areas, such as defending product liability and defending class actions. But I think more importantly, I learned something about the work habits in order to achieve the success that they achieve and in turn that I hope uh, I've been able to emulate. The one thing that I always think about myself coming from a blue-collar family and, and the first of my extended family to attend college, no less law school, is that I've learned from my parents and and others in my family to work hard. And so I always think that if nothing else, I outwork my opponent. And I think that that has led to a lot of the success that I've had. I've also rarely missed an opportunity to work on a matter regardless of how busy I am at, at that particular moment. The one thing I like to tell our uh, younger attorneys and associates is that sometimes you just have to get on the train when it's leaving the station and worry about where where you're sitting on the train at a later date. And one of the things that I find today is that, uh, and I'm sure it was said of my generation as well, is that I think oftentimes young attorneys only look at the work that's on their desk. Frankly, I like to think in 12 months, if not the next 24 months, what am I going to be doing? Obviously, the nature of litigation is that things settle, things get transferred to another court, things get stayed. I always like to have a significant number of matters that I'm working on so that I'm never not busy. Frankly, I'm the type that I don't know what I'd do with myself if I wasn't busy. It's a great lead into our next question, because if you're looking 12 to 24 months ahead, especially with litigation, there is some ebbs and flows. And I'm assuming not every current client has litigation matters that need attention on a consistent basis. You know, What is your strategy for making sure you have enough coming down the pike, making sure that you have enough to really fulfill the needs of your practice specific to new clients? A couple of things. One is trying to ahead of 
developments, you know, in the toxic tort area, there seems to be a constant flow of new studies, new concerns expressed about certain chemicals. So one of the things I try to do is to stay on top of the science so that I can advise my clients of what may be coming down the pike. For example, glyphosate, which is essentially Roundup. There have been a number of studies and a number of developments regarding glyphosate, both at the state and federal levels, and we have counseled several clients on what those developments are. Now, I'm not directly involved in representing Monsanto, which has been the target of literally hundreds of lawsuits, but I think as we've seen in other toxic torts, it's likely to expand to other companies, some of whom we are currently representing and counseling on developments in that area. The other thing, which in some ways may be unique to Greenberg Traurig, is we have a very collaborative environment and not a day goes by where there isn't a an email that typically begins, pardon the interruption, who's the firm's expert on, and, and you can pick just about any topic. Most days, I don't even understand. <laughs> I don't even understand the question, but when it involves either class actions or product liability issues, invariably, I'm one of the people identified. And so one of the things I can't emphasize enough is to really get to know your partners, not just the in, in my case, the Chicago office, but throughout the firm and demonstrate to them a recognized expertise in a particular area. To quote the movie Field of Dreams, if, if you build it, they will come. I like to think that certainly when it comes to class actions or product liability cases, particularly those filed in and around Chicago, I am on just about everyone's radar screen in order to sell me or for me to sell myself to existing clients of the firm. And presently, I'm working on probably five class actions that are clients of other people in the firm and are culture is is such that not only are we encouraged to collaborate in that way, we're rewarded for doing so. Whether it's going to retreats or uh, visiting other offices, I think it's important to build your network within the firm the same way you would build it outside of the firm. Those are certainly two of the things that I've done in order to continue to grow my practice and practice of those people I work with. Fantastic. Glad you mentioned the reward portion of that because we do hear that if the culture promotes strong collaboration and the reward system is right in line with that, that really balances out and creates that collaborative environment. So thank you for mentioning that. We do hear partners talk about making sure that they're out making connections within the firm, getting their expertise recognized within the firm. Frank, have you done anything that is more proactive around that within your firm? possibly publishing more internal items for review by other lawyers, other partners, so that they can be more aware of what to look for. How are you going about getting to be known within the firm? Or how did you go about getting to be known within the firm? Well, I think it's been a combination of things. Certainly publishing client alerts, publishing articles that then get circulated within the firm. In fact, we're in the process now of revamping our 
our website and revising our bios. And I was going through mine yesterday, and I was actually somewhat surprised at how many things I've either spoken at or authored. And that's certainly one way of getting known within the firm. I mean, the other way, I think, is achieving success. Word spreads pretty rapidly within the firm. We do have a weekly newsletter where successes get published and achievements get recognized. That certainly helps. And then I don't know that I would consider them mentors because they're more contemporaries. But when I joined Greenberg Traurig in 2000, the Chicago office was just a handful of people. We're now either the second or third largest office in the firm. And I've had people who have very much been my advocates throughout the firm. I think I was here less than a a week and got a phone call from Keith Shapiro, who was then the managing partner of the Chicago office. And he said, you know, I've got this bankruptcy matter here in Chicago with one of the partners from our Delaware office. And I know you're a terrific trial attorney, and I'd like you to to work on this matter with him. I had very little experience in bankruptcy court. In fact, when, when Keith called me, he said it was a chapter 22, and I knew so little about bankruptcy that I actually thought there was a chapter 22. I later learned that a chapter 22 is actually a second chapter 11 proceeding. You know, as a result of my work in that case, there was a steady period of time where I was involved in a number of high-profile bankruptcy proceedings, and, and, and that's very typical of our firm. Not only is it collaborative, but I certainly feel like I've been rewarded for those cross-collaborations. The key to me is really developing the expertise. While I think it's terrific if you happen to be college roommates with the general counsel of a major corporation, and some people have had that fortune in life, I think at the end of the day, our clients want to know that they are hiring attorneys who have the expertise and the skills to steer them to a good result. And so uh, I've really worked on developing my craft more than anything else. It's a great answer, Frank, and thank you. We do hear good work is an absolute minimum, right? It is necessary to play, especially in these major firms, in the AM200, and, and all firms, right? You need to be good at what you do. And then, of course, that success can really be your strategy for business development. And I think your point about success spreads quickly, you know, it does. That is a absolute strategy, especially at a point in your career where you are being recognized for that expertise. That said, you know, I would love to share if with our listeners a story where you were either surprised that you were able to secure a particular matter, piece of business, or one where you were surprised that you were not able to secure a particular matter, or piece of business or went a different direction? Two that come to mind. One is internal and one external. Let me start with the external. We handled a class action here for a large supermarket 
chain able to get the matter dismissed on an initial motion to dismiss the court dismissed the complaint with prejudice and plaintiff chose not to take an appeal. Fast forward, so this was a couple of years ago and about two months ago, I noticed in the court filings that the same client had been sued in a another class action, although very different allegations. This one involving the way in which prescriptions were charged to either Medicare Part B or Medicare care part D reached out to the client to let him know that this matter had been filed here. Coincidentally, was assigned to the same judge in which we had success in the prior matter based on that email. And of course, based on the great results we achieved in the prior case, we were retained in a matter of a couple of days, which is rewarding because sometimes you spend a weekend or more preparing an elaborate pitch only to find out that you're not getting the case. Another client of mine had reached out to me about a significant lawsuit involving privacy concerns and reached out to me and one of my partners in California who literally wrote the book on these privacy actions. I spent the weekend putting together a proposal and outlining our potential defenses to the case and only to find out that the client was concerned about a potential conflict that, frankly, we didn't think was much of a concern. And if it was a concern, there were ways to work around it. And even though I think the client thought that we were the right team, they couldn't get comfortable with that potential conflict and went in another direction. On the one hand, I wrote a, a short email and got a major matter. On the other hand, I spent a weekend putting together a detailed 10-page proposal only to have it nixed because of a perceived conflict. The one internal one that I like to tell associates, there is a partner in our uh, Philadelphia office who is one of the deans of the environmental bar in, in this country. I mean, he's that well recognized and regarded. I had met him once because there was the potential for an appeal to the Seventh Circuit and he was in Chicago in connection with another matter and that was early in 2011 and then New Year's Eve 2011 at about four o'clock and my wife and I were in New York and I got a phone call from my partner saying, remember that matter we talked about? It's going to trial in Wisconsin in another month or so. And would you be interested in trying the case with me? And I said, well, having gotten to know David a little bit from our initial meeting, I said, well, David, the answer is yes, but it's four o'clock on New Year's Eve. Can we talk tomorrow? And I literally meant New Year's Day. And he said, yes. A little did I I know at that time that that would take up much of my next five plus years in which within the span of 11 months, we tried both a contribution action among some of the defendants and then the government's enforcement case in what is the largest Superfund site in the country. Learned literally on the fly. I mean, we were in the ceremonial courtroom in Milwaukee. The, The trial was actually venued in Green Bay, but the 
courtroom in Green Bay was too small, so they moved us to Milwaukee. And having first heard about the case about six weeks before, played a major role. Not only did I have satisfaction of that professional experience, but my partner in Philadelphia has become a very dear friend and colleague. The reason I tell that to young associates, it would have been very easy for me to say, David, are you crazy? I've got too many things on my plate. I don't have time to jump on this case. And that thought frankly, never, ever crossed my mind. It it turned out to be one of the most intellectually challenging matters I've ever worked on. And again, I think the culture of our firm is very supportive and encouraging of that. Would have been very easy for me to say no, both from a personal as well as from a cultural perspective. That was not the right answer. (laughs) Absolutely. And it goes back to what you said, take advantage of opportunities. That's one of your personal strengths. I think that building that bond, creating that reputation came from that. And now a word from our episode sponsor. Legal transactions are complex and chaotic. Simplify with Doxly. With countless documents, revisions, and signatures to review, negotiate, and track, lawyers can get bogged down in administrative work and distracted from higher margin tasks that add value to a transaction. Doxly provides one solution to manage all aspects of your transaction practice. For more information, go to doxly.com. That's D-O-X-L-Y.com. Frank, I want to ask you something. You mentioned outlining potential defenses to a case, and and it was the one case where there was a potential conflict, so it didn't go forward. Do you share those potential defenses with your client? And the reason I ask, as we interview in-house general counsel, they're often talking these days about wanting to understand outcomes when they're talking with them about a matter. And I was wondering if that was quite typical in your practice area, that you would share potential defenses? I think it's pretty typical. We'll generally outline for the client course of action, a strategy. When we're doing a pitch, we don't have a great deal of knowledge about the facts, but I mean, more often than not, it's something we've seen a similar case. So, I mean, we've typically have a lot of insights as to what the facts are likely to be, as well as what the defenses are likely to be. And we almost always share it with the client. I think that's what the client is hopefully base its decision on, again, whether you have the expertise as well as the knowledge of, of the court and, and frankly, the relationships with, with the court. I mean, I spend a lot of time going to events. I was at a Federal Bar Association event the other night. More often than not, you're sort of like, well, it'd be nice to go home, but it's an important part of what we do to get out in the community and meet both the local judges as well as the local practitioners, and not only to get yourself known, but to get to know the judges and and other practitioners in the city. You've been practicing for a number of years, and that last success story and the outlining of potential defenses, that idea that your experience, you've seen how this will typically play out. So I would imagine that clients that come to you, to your firm, they're coming because they know 
you could handle the matter in a way that's effective and then efficient. And because you have experience doing this, that you're going to get to the decision quicker, less expensively. Has that been a factor? Has the market and the changes in the market affected either the way you practice or the way you work with clients or the way that you structure your relationship with clients? How has changing market conditions affected your approach to your work? I mean, the market has shifted, I think, in the sense that the marketplace in general is far more sophisticated than maybe it was 20 years ago or maybe even 10 years ago. So I do think clients are looking for experience and efficiencies. I think one of the things unique about Greenberg is we are not leveraged in the sense that other law firms are. In fact, in the Chicago litigation department, which which I co-head, as you graciously said in your introduction, we have, I think, 14 associates and 32 shareholders. So we actually have the opposite of leverage. So I think one of the things we offer, and I think our clients understand it, is you, you may not like my billing rate, but you know that you're going to get my attention and get the efficiencies that come with 30 years of experience as opposed to having five associates spinning their wheels for a week to do something that I can do in two hours. I do think sophisticated clients recognize that there are clients that are more often than not going to decide on rates and far be it for me to, to know what's what's best for those clients. But I, I do think focusing on rates alone really doesn't tell much of the story. I think our rates are certainly competitive compared to other large firms. The more important metric is the efficiencies and what are you getting for those rates. And I think in my case, what they're getting is knowing that they can pick up the phone and call me. And I know not only do I know the answer, but I know probably what the next question is. And and it's not the situation where I've got to run down the hall to find the associate to give me the answer. There is a proper balance that obviously needs to be struck. What the client wants to know is that I'm not only in charge, but I have the big picture in mind and know when to identify the right resources to take on certain tasks that can certainly be done cheaply and more efficiently by younger lawyers. And and hopefully that's the balance we strike. But certainly, I think clients are very focused on efficiencies. I think one of the areas that has changed dramatically is is obviously document review. I still remember sitting in a warehouse for weeks on end looking at documents. And now not only is it all electronic, but more often than not, there are outsourcing firms that can do document review much more cheaply and with artificial intelligence and other technology. I think we're going to see even a further wave of document review that is even further removed from the days when associates would sit in a cavernous room and look at documents. Certainly one of the reasons why perhaps the the number of associates at other firms has begun to shrink because 
us, we were never a leveraged model. I think it's had less effect on us than, than other firms. You know, it's interesting. We hear a lot about legal project managers, legal pricing professionals, definitely legal tech as other parts of the law firm environment today. And the number of people in those roles, the associate roles might be decreasing that you're seeing these other professionals coming into the law firm environment to be part of the legal ecosystem with the intent that there's efficiencies around that. And of course, artificial intelligence or assisted intelligence, because someone actually has to program those systems to do what they do. These things are in the environment, shared services site, customer sites, secured sites to exchange data with customers. They're all here today. That said, in your practice, in your work, in your opinion, what do you think is truly innovative that's really entering the law firm space and the legal services space today? Certainly project management. You're absolutely correct. I mean, we have an entire group dedicated to project management and that has certainly been a significant development. We have a group that is dedicated to pricing and more and more clients want to explore alternative fees. We now have hopefully the metrics to put together an alternative fee that is both fair to the client as well as fair to the law firm. So you're you're absolutely correct that the ecosystem that we have today is very different from certainly when I started out 30 years ago, but even I think very different than what we had 10 years ago, a handful of paralegals and some databases, and that was your most advanced techniques. Now, I think we're sort of light years beyond that. Putting together the data that allows you to explore alternative fees is critical, and I still am guilty of of raising this question or concern is litigation is unpredictable. We have a better ability now with technology is to capture uncertainties. And of course, sometimes you're going to be right and sometimes you're going to be wrong. And and hopefully with alternative fees, it evens out over the course of an engagement over the course of a particular time period. I mean, I think obviously if you have a number of matters with a particular client, I think it's more likely to even out over the course of time. If now we have the tools available to look at across a wide spectrum of cases and say, well, here's the last 50 class actions we've handled as a firm, and here's what the average cost of a motion to dismiss was, here's what the average cost of class certification was, and you know, make use of those tools. As a firm, we've had a lot of success doing that, and certainly Hillary Bass, who's one of our co-presidents and is an incoming chair of the American Bar Association, has been a staunch advocate of alternative fees and has been out in the marketplace talking about alternative fees long before it became a popular thing to talk about. One of our guests recently said, you can do an AFA. It doesn't mean you can't talk to your client about something that occurred that was unexpected. It doesn't mean the client's not going to add in some additional things that they'd like to be considered to a particular matter or project. There's still that communication that's going to go on. That's absolutely right. And I think the lawyer-client relationship 
has to be a relationship of mutual trust. And if you can't have that conversation to say, you know, look, no one anticipated that the court would give the plaintiff three opportunities to file an amended complaint. And here we are two years after the fact, and we're still not at issue. You know, similarly, I think the client has to be comfortable and the firm has to be receptive to the reverse conversation, which is, gee, no one anticipated you were going to win this case in six months, and we agreed to this flat fee. And you have to be able to have those type conversations. I mean, the foundation of the relationship has to be one of mutual trust and conversation. Definitely see alternative fees as being part of the future. That said, we have a lot of partners and new partners looking for advice on business development. Frank, we hear from our listeners and the majority are partners that are five to 10 years in. And they're basically saying what worked initially is not working. I need some suggestions or... You know, I just want to hear how other folks grew their business and established themselves in their practice. I am looking for other ways to do this that are either more comfortable or just different. For those new partners, those just starting their business development journey, what advice would you give them and how to approach those new responsibilities? The first thing I would say, and I think the thing that has worked best for me is that it is far easier to develop business from existing clients or existing relationships within the firm than it is to develop a new client from outside the firm. Developing a new client takes a lot of effort, a lot of patience, a lot of time. I think you should always be doing both, but I think at the end of the day, it's a lot easier, I think, to reach out to one of your partners and say, hey, I just saw that company X was sued and I know you have a relationship with company X. Would you be willing to introduce me to them? Would you be willing to open the door for me? And I think that that is really the easiest way to develop businesses to develop it from either your own existing clients or from uh, other clients within the firm. And obviously, in order to do that, you have to have the type of collaborative environment that that I know we have. I, I mean, I do hear stories about other firms where people are very protective of their client to the point where even though that firm has an office in, say, Chicago, they'll go out and hire a local counsel from another firm. And I just, when I hear stories like that, I just kind of shake my head and am astonished that that goes on because I know it wouldn't happen here. And I know it wouldn't happen in most firms, but it does happen in some firms. So I think that's the first thing. Second, and I guess equally important, and maybe I'm old-fashioned in in this regard, but I do think developing your skills is probably the most important thing you can do. I'm a bit of an introvert, so I'm probably less comfortable at a cocktail party just kind of walking up to someone and shooting the breeze, although there's a you know, there's a lot of things I can shoot the breeze about. But on the other hand, if the topic is something that I have a lot of expertise on, I'm happy to, to talk 
endlessly going back to Field of Dreams, which maybe outdate many of your listeners, that expression, if you build it, they will come, I think is true even in today's age. Clients want to know that you've got the expertise, that you've got the knowledge of both the law as well as the local war, as I like to say. Big cities like Chicago, going over to the Daly Center in Cook County can be a real mystery. To, to many, unless you know how things work. Even though I'm an introvert, I'm very comfortable in court. I view court as the way an actor views the stage. I guess I appreciate when I see someone on late night talk shows and he or she is an actor and they say they're an introvert and very quiet. And I understand that's the way I am when I'm in court. I'm a very different person than when I'm at a cocktail party than when I'm in court. I mean, I think everybody has to do what makes them comfortable. I mean, you can't be something you're not talking about your expertise, you'd recommend to others. Establish that expertise. Obviously, the local lore and getting to know the folks. You mentioned it earlier in the interview, that opportunity, instead of going home to go out and be at an industry or at a professional event where you would get to know or reconfirm a relationship with a judge or, or with another practitioner. Frank, and it's coming through, it's coming through whether it's easier because it's a podcast. You have passion on this topic, so I don't believe anyone would consider you an interest. No, I appreciate that. I mean, I guess at this point when I've been practicing for 33 years, I mean, there isn't a whole lot that I worry about or there's certainly nothing that, that frightens me about court or judges anymore. I mean, I've been yelled at. I've had books thrown at me. You know, it's all part of the job. I never have trouble putting my head on the pillow at night. Excellent point. You know, I had the pleasure of interviewing Vivia Chen, who writes the Careerist column. She said, you know, it does get easier. It gets easier over time. You get to know more people. It becomes more comfortable. You can walk into a room and not know who's going to be there and feel comfortable doing that, no matter where we come from on that extrovert, introvert scale. No, I'm glad you said that, because that's exactly how I feel from time to time. Get asked by my wife, you're 57, and you ever think about slowing down? <laughs> my answer is always absolutely not. I mean, I, I finally feel like I can walk into a courtroom and I know the subject area. Why would I now, after spending 30 plus years building to that skill, slow down? I'm kind of just now in the prime of my career, even though it takes a while to get there. Enjoyable interview. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? I still think the law is is a profession and while the business side of it has become maybe less so, I still think you have to have a passion for what you're doing. I guess I'm fortunate in that I really love what I'm doing and I love learning new things, whether it's a new technology and a product case that I'm handling or environmental law, as, as I explained in Superfund case. You have to have that thirst for knowledge and the passion for what you're doing. I think if you don't, your clients know that or they see it. And sometimes maybe it takes them a while to see it. They want to know that you're part of their team. In fact, I was on a call with a client. I was using the term hour and the client stopped and said, I really appreciate that when you use the term hour, you're putting yourself in our shoes as opposed to saying you need to do the following. I kept using we. We have strong defenses. 
services and our product is a safe product. And I think they really appreciated that because it wasn't just the case to me. I mean, I felt very passionate about this particular product and its safety. And I guess I'm fortunate enough that I, I always feel that way about my clients and cases I handle. Very important and very genuine. I can hear the fact that that's genuine in that last point, Frank. I appreciate it. Frank, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.